Uh, we are uh, in the second week of a Lenten series uh, called 40, The Art of Letting Go. 40, The Art of Letting Go. Now, since I did not explicitly say it last week, the 40 in the title is if you go from Ash Wednesday to Easter Resurrection Sunday, it's 44 days. But what tradition holds is you don't include the Sundays. So if you minus the four Sundays, you get 40 days. So there's 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Resurrection Sunday. And so Sunday, that those four days off, if you will, is in the midst of, say, you're fasting or going without, however it may be, if you're giving something up for Lent or fasting from something, these four uh, Sundays are like, they're, they're days off. Uh, there's a little bit of rest in there. Or the way you can think of it, which is the way it would be understood, is there is feasting in the midst of fasting. Oh, I have a day in which we can feast. That's good. Uh, we come to better appreciate um, what it is we're giving up, uh, fasting from, when, when we go without and then we have a day, well, like now, now I will have my coffee. In fact, I'll drink the whole pot. Um, or, or however that looks. I mean, we don't want to get crazy, but last week uh, our central text uh, was Matthew chapter 4. We were in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, but we specifically honed in on verses 1 through 4, and verses 1 through 4 were this first temptation of Jesus. So you have the accuser, Satan, the devil, uh, coming to Jesus and tempting Jesus or testing Jesus uh, in the desert. And so we looked at this first temptation. Uh, the, this morning we're going to look at the second one. Last week was, was looking at what would be understood as a necessity, but the issue becomes when a necessity moves to like idolatry, when it becomes something that we hold in front of, above God, when we begin to understand or think God's not enough and I give too much energy, too much power to this thing, whatever that may be. So when we move in that direction, and this morning, the second temptation, we're going to look at the idea of letting go of power, power itself. What does it mean to let go of this uh, insatiable need for power. So uh, I'd love to say a prayer, then we're going to sink into Matthew 4, 1 through 11. We'll look at verses 5 through 7 specifically. So if you'd pray. Uh, gracious God, what a gift to be together. We bless you for this time to be able to gather as your body, the church. Uh, God, it, it is a gift and we desire more than anything to hear from you. And so May the posture, meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you and you alone. Uh, we pray this as you are our Lord, our rock, our Savior, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Off we go. Uh, we'll have some fun. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we'll read through the whole thing and then circle back to verses 5 through 7. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You can also think desert. That's what it is. It's desert. To be tempted by 
the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone." Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. Now the second temptation uh, that we're going to focus in on is found in verses 5 through 7. So we'll read those again so they're fresh with us. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now if we begin with context, context, context. We'll just start with a little context, then we'll do a little uh, exercise thinking, and then we'll go back into some context. But we'll start with, in this place where it says he took him to the holy city, this is Jerusalem, took him to the temple, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Uh, next slide. We have a picture of the temple I circled for you the pinnacle of the temple. It is this side of things. It's like taking Jesus. Now, here's the thing. From the solitude of the desert, right? He's by himself in the desert fasting 40 days and 40 nights. The devil takes him out of the solitude of the desert to the bustling activity of the temple in Jerusalem. He just went from quiet to lots of activity, the most public place, put you on the pinnacle of that. Now you are in the utmost public platform. Everyone can see you. This is where Satan takes him and says, now all eyes are on you, Jesus. If you really are the son of God, if you're loved by God, then God would not hesitate to rescue you if you jumped. Ready for this? In fact, the devil says to him, the Bible says that God will rescue you if you jump. Interesting, right? Like, whoa. Satan is saying, hey, listen, the Bible says so. Go ahead. Now, before we sink further into the context, let's do a little bit of a mental uh, thought exercise here. 
Imagine that you are not in charge and other people are. Maybe it's a boss at work, maybe a parent, maybe it's a larger institutional power. And the decisions being made, though, dramatically impact your well-being. Just imagine. So over time, you begin to wonder what it would be like if you were in charge. Then the day comes where you are offered power, raising the questions, what decisions would you make? How would you lead? What would you do with that kind of power. Just think about that. Now, back to our story. Contextually, Jesus has come from a scene in which he was baptized by his cousin John. This is the scene that leads into chapter 4. In his baptism, it says, the divine has spoken love over him. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, these two stories together, from coming from three, the baptism into four, in this tempting testing in the desert, the elements of these stories actually mirror a much earlier story for the Hebrew people. We talked about it last week. These are Jesus' ancestors, and about 1,500 years before Jesus, the Hebrew people were rescued from slavery in Egypt. Then they were led through the waters of the Red Sea, by the time of Jesus, that, that, that action was understood as the baptism of the Hebrew people. So they're led through the Red Sea. Then they are taken for 40 years to walk the wilderness or walk the desert in order to test and figure out, are your hearts ready for you to come into this land that is promised to you? Are you ready to steward it? Are you ready to live in it in the ways that are good news? So this time in the desert is testing their hearts. Here in Matthew, he is telling a story of Jesus who's now gone through the waters of baptism. Then he is led by the Spirit into the desert where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Numbers in the Bible aren't always and I would say rarely are actually literal and they're more a picture, they're a symbol. 40, 40, it's taking us back to, oh, they spent time doing this. So then, the story, what it does is it has Jesus succeeding where the Hebrew people failed. In the desert, when they wandered for 40 years, they continuously failed in their trusting of God. And Jesus goes through this and kind of mirrors this thing, and he succeeds where they failed. That's what's going on in this story. Now, how Jesus succeeds is really important, and we're going to circle back to that in a moment. How Jesus succeeds. But first... The Israelite people's story is summed up in chapter 8 of the book of Deuteronomy, which we started in last week, and we're going to jump back in. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8 is very crucial for what is going on in the testing. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was what? In your heart whether or not you would keep his commandments. 
Let's see how you're doing. Now, this is really important. The testing of the Hebrew people and the testing of Jesus are about the heart. The inner battle is the true battle in both these stories. The focus is the heart, not the external force that provides the temptation. What is going on in your heart? Now, I get the thinking that we're like bad devil. Devil's tempting Jesus, bad devil. But it's important. What was that? It's a bit much. But it's important we grasp that devil, either devil or Satan, which both those words are used in the Matthew thing, they're both titles. They're both titles that mean false accuser, slanderer, and adversary to good. So here's the thing. To be a person or be a people who do good, we can expect then that chaos is coming. If we are going to walk in the ways of God, if we're going to do good, then we actually know, well, then guess what? Chaos is coming after us. That's, that's what we see here. False accuser, slanderer, adversary to good is going to come after those who do good, who are walking this out, yes? This is huge for understanding the focus of Jesus going forward. The battle will not for Jesus be against Rome or the temple establishment, so think static religious institution. Those are not the focus. The battle is always an internal wrestling an unseen enemy vying for the heart. It's an, this is an, always an internal wrestling match. There is an unseen enemy vying for your heart, my heart, after distracting us, taking us off course. In the text, the accuser begins the first two temptations with the words, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, then why don't you turn these stones into bread? If you are the Son of God, jump off the temple. God, I mean, God wants to feed you, right? God wants to rescue you, so go ahead and jump. So use your power to prove that you are favored, that you are superior. Prove that you are, in fact, divine. Prove it. Use your power to prove it. So let's be honest. This temptation is about dialing up empirical evidence to prove that I have the power so I can do whatever I want. This, what Satan is pitching, is appealing to the ego. Use your power to puff up yourself. To get at this better, note how the accuser is quoting scripture, the Bible, at Jesus to justify this temptation. Now the accuser is quoting Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, but the devil is quoting, wait for it, out of context. Should we be surprised? The devil's like, I got some scripture for you. I'll just rip it out of context. So when we go to Psalm 91, we'll read how the psalm is framed so we can catch what is going on at the heart 
of the text. Psalm 91, we'll begin in the beginning, uh, verse 1. Whoever, think of how this goes, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare. Notice what it's saying there. He will save you from the fowler's snare coming after you and from the deadly pestilence. Then we go up to verse 9. If you say the Lord is my refuge and make the Most High your dwelling, that is if the divine is your center, your foundation, your baseline, this is where you begin, then no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Notice where this is due. It's coming at you. For he, and this is what then Satan, uh, the devil, is quoting, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In Matthew, the devil makes it sound like God will protect you no matter what you do, Jesus. No matter what you choose to do, God will protect you, mainly jumping off the temple. You can do whatever you want. Jump off the temple. Or maybe contextually, hey, Jesus, why don't you get in a headbutt match with a Nubian Ibex? So, the, and you're like, what the? Okay, if we go Israel, this is the national animal, the Nubian Ibex. They're wild mountain goats. You see them in Israel. And if you see them, sometimes they will do what they do. They just start fighting smashing their heads together. It's really when you're there and you're like, oh, look at that sight. And you also go, I don't think I'd like to get in between those, right? And you do, look kind of cute. Oh, I'd like to tickle his beard. I don't know that's a good idea. <laughs> but notice then what, what's not going, it's like, Jesus, you can do whatever you want as if it's like, go ahead and headbutt that thing. No, I'm pretty sure if you do, guess who's going to win? You see what's going on? The psalm is actually about the person who trusts, who places their trust on the divine as their foundation. So then when threat, danger, or evil comes at you, and it will come at you, the divine will be your protection. That doesn't mean you go, I think I'll just go run into oncoming traffic. So this is not a transactional understanding of God where we do whatever we want because God is supposed to catch us no matter what. But that is how the devil is actually putting the temptation. Clever. You can do whatever you want. God will, God will save you. The Bible said so. This is about setting one's foundation on the divine, fixing our faithfulness in God because chaos is coming. I would say it like this then. The question is not, where is God when evil appears? The question is, where do we place our trust when evil appears? Those are very different things. Are you with me? Yes. Now, Jesus is going to quote scripture back to the accuser. But Jesus, of course, does so in context. It's 
a lot of fun if you're a nerd. It's fantastic and needed. But this shows the heart behind the text, which is about the character of the divine. So Jesus is going to quote from Deuteronomy 6, which is summarizing part of the Exodus story, which is the story Jesus is reenacting. He's mirroring, right? But again, Jesus succeeds where the Hebrew people had failed. So let's turn again to that story in Deuteronomy and back up a few verses so that we catch the context. Verse 13, fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Context is crucial. Here we see a reference to Massah, which takes us to the actual story in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verse 7. So let's go to that story so we get it. And he, this is Moses, called the place where they were Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now the words Massah, and Meribah in Hebrew mean testing and quarreling. So Moses says, I'm calling this place what you all have been doing. You have been quarreling with me, constantly saying, do this for us. Are you going to leave us hungry? Are you going to leave us thirsty? What's the deal with God? You better show up here, Moses, and you better do stuff for us. And then they complain and they go, God, where are you? We're thirsty right now. God, we're hungry. Where are you? And so they do this. And so he's like, I'm going to name this place, you bickering people. Right? And he, and he does. Now, this then text to say, stop testing God. The divine is always with you, will provide for you, and will protect you. You've experienced it time and time again in these 40 years, and yet it's as if they have short-term memory. I know we ate yesterday, but I'm hungry. Where are you, God? And then the next day, I know I ate yesterday, but... I know I ate this morning, but... And it's like they just keep saying, God, it's not... It, it's never enough. And Moses says, I've had enough. Stop bickering at me and stop testing God. He is with us. He has provided. So, the divine is always with you, will provide for you, protect you, but, and this is a very big but, that doesn't mean you get to live however you want, worshiping other gods, right? It says in there, don't go then worshiping other gods and doing whatever you like because actions have consequences. I don't get to eat all that I want, whenever I want, as much as I want, and just pound it and then complain, I tried to put these pants on and they don't fit. Where are you, God? How dare you? Why does the peanut butter cake not make my pants fit? It's because God is not good. 
I'm not, like, this is just what's taking place in this. See how the context is uh, communicating the very opposite of what the accuser is trying to get Jesus to do. Don't live haphazard, but be very clear about what your foundation is, or better, who your foundation is. Yet, one more example of why context matters, which I think raises a question for us and attention for us today. Next slide. Do we use the Bible to justify our ways or our rightness and in effect miss the intention of the very text we're quoting? Uh-oh. Right? This is, as I mentioned last week, playing quote wars with the Bible is more often not an attempt to be right, which means I'm going to prove you wrong. That's what I'm trying to do here. And I get it. It's understandable that we would want to be confident in how we are living, that what we are doing or teaching is true and accurate. I get that. But I would argue that proper confidence would lead to humility and patience. In this text, we see Jesus surrendering to the way of God, which is to walk in the will of the divine, experiencing then the shalom, the peace of the eternal. The accuser says, jump and test. But the psalm is about placing one's trust and security on the divine so you can hold confidently to God when difficulty or testing comes after you. The accuser displays how easy it is to use Scripture as a weapon for serving the self. Context, 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 context. Once again, this is about trusting the divine, which the Hebrew people failed to do several times in their journey in the desert. They kept forgetting how the divine faithfully supplied all that they needed. The Bible is not a book to give us the best life, as in the world's version of prosperity. This is not to bring about our kingdom, but to align our lives with the divine and to faithfully walk in the kingdom of God. Jesus does not leverage power then for doing whatever he wants. Rather, Jesus humbly walks with the divine to make a way for all people to walk on the path of God. He's like, I'll pave the way. I will follow. I'll get right what you all got wrong to pave the way so that you can walk with God. That's what we're doing is I'm actually making a way for you all to walk with me with the divine, in the kingdom of God. So, with that, I want to turn again to some practical daily practices. Uh, so, last, uh, so we mentioned there, there, there should be some left, but there are um, what we call bookmarks. They're table, what are the, would you say, like a you know, tape, coffee table, setting, something, I don't know. They're massive. They're not a bookmark unless 
But either way, they have a practice. Seven practices each week for these uh, for, for Lent. Seven practices we're just encouraging. They're, they're meant to be like maybe they just get your uh, imagination going. They're ideas. Um, but we're going to look at some of those um, so that we can think about how it is that we extrapolate the puffed up pride that can be found in pursuing power. So this week's uh, can look a little bit like this. Tell someone who looks up to you what you appreciate about them. Just take a moment and go, wow, this person really looks up to me, whatever it may be. And you go, I'm going to spend some time encouraging them, letting them know what I appreciate about them. Uh, Maybe it's apologize for something. I put in parentheses, use the words, I was wrong. I mean, I don't, some of you are like, how dare you swear? How dare you? Use the words, I was wrong. Now, if I get that you might not be able to go and you were right. That might be a bit much. We'll work our way that way. But I was wrong. I'm going to apologize. I am sorry for what I said, did, acted. This one, let someone else make a decision that impacts you. Now, after our Ash Wednesday uh, gathering that we had here, uh, I was talking um, to a friend, and she was saying that um, a friend of hers one time, this was actually how she was introduced to Lent. She didn't know all what was Lent, and a friend came to her and said, hey, here's the thing. I'm going to give something up for the next 40 days, and I want you to pick that thing for me. You see what it was is you know me really well. You're my friend and I want you to pick something because if I pick something, I'm going to pick something that I can go, eh. You pick something, you think about, think about what it is that you know would sting a little bit for me and I'm going to give you that power. Ooh. Now, we're just saying this might be one day in which you ask somebody else to pick something for you. One day, which is just 101, let someone skip in line in front of you. Hey, I know you have 15 items and that thing says you're only supposed to have 10. Why don't you go in front of me anyways, though? Yes, I only have two items, but please go before me. This is what we're doing now, right? Now, choose to go last. Next slide, choose to go last. That would be one thing you could do, choose to go last. Um, Get in the back of the line. Park far away from the store. Ooh, ooh, there's a place up front, but I'm going to go park way over here. Take care of something in your house that is normally taken care of by someone else. Find a way to empower someone else. Now, this is not on your bookmark. This was one I was just reflecting on. Ask yourself whether the dominant reason you vote the way you do is because you want what is best for the whole or to fill your bowl. I, I like a little sing-songy. I need a little something-something that pings around in my heart. So that was my thing, like, well, how, why are we doing this? Is this about us or is this about me? That's all. Just a question. Just a question. And one more. Uh, one more ancient practice. We'll go to an ancient practice intended to draw us out of any selfish, entitled or power-wielding ways, an ancient practice. Uh, Would you all stand with me? 
we're going to recite together what is known as, what is traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer. So this is a couple chapters after Jesus has come out of this temptation. Then he's going to work his way into teaching his students, his apprentices, his disciples. This is then what, how we would posture ourselves our way. So that we would read together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts and, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For yours. I typed it in wrong. Um, take note that it's not about bringing glory and recognition to our name, but to hallow and bring recognition, attention to the reputation of the divine. That name, it isn't like, when it says that, your name, it isn't like uh, Ralph. It's not like the literal, it's reputation. That's what the word in the original language means, your reputation. I want to live, I want to do in things in such a way that it brings honor and glory to your reputation. When people see my life, he's asking his students to pray to walk in such a way when people see your ways, they go, wow, God is something else. Because I knew that person five minutes ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, and there is something radically different about them. Wow, God is good. And so we live in such a way as to bring honor and glory to God. It's a fantastic um, exercise, practice. And I know maybe some of us grew up in church and so we've said it over and over and over again and it become the familiarity um, breeds contempt as the philosopher Dallas Willard once said. So we have to sometimes unlearn and go, no, 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 there is something else going on here. And I want to say it and practice it, practice it and say it. So may this be true of us, that we would be these kind of people who walk in humility, serve others, Whatever power, influence we might have, that we go, how might I lift this person up? How might I help this person in their low state? They're hurting. And might I use my influence and power to serve, to love, to bring in those that may have been left out? Gracious God, I bless you always meeting us right where we are. Not with a posture of shaming us, but invitation to grow, to take that next right step with you. You use your power to invite us in. You use your power to pave the way so that we have a path to walk on. I bless you, God, for loving us in such a way that you bring us along. 
You are patient with us. And you call us to more, to who you've created us to be. May we then, God, follow in your footsteps, walk in your ways, use whatever influence and power we have. God, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear those around us who might be crying out, who might be hurting, who might need a hand. And may we use our power and influence for others finding their way back to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.